Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this spectacular episode, we consider the contents of Starlog magazine from 1979 in issues 23 and 24. This episode features guest commentary by Alan Seiler considers how Doctor Who invaded American television. Marcus and Lisa discuss the acting career of David Prowse. Plus, Alien, and a celebration of Starlog Magazine's third year of publishing in this episode of Starpod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey cutie pie. Hey Pudin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and fantasy. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. If you are listening to us on a podcast app, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, which includes bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. Music City Multicon is October 29th through 31st in Lebanon, Tennessee. We will be there. Galton Comic Con is being hosted by Town Square Records and Comics and is being held on November 13th at the Epic Events Center in Gallatin, Tennessee. Awesome comic book convention. We love it every time we go. Starlog Magazine, issue number 23, cover date June 1979. Log entries, latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Inside Disney's The Black Hole. Black Hole is a term for one of the great anomalies of the cosmos, the imploded remains of a giant sun, consisting of matter so densely impacted that its ravenous gravity rips at the very fabric of the universe and from which no matter or light can escape. No film crew can capture the awesome wonder of such a galactic maelstrom especially since it exists only in theory, but it can be simulated, and that is the challenge before the Walt Disney Studios as they tackle their biggest film project to date, The Black Hole. This news article really pumps up The Black Hole that it's going to be a science-based Disney movie. And we know that Disney has a history of making great science-based productions, so anyone who reads this would think... This is going to be like Disney's version of maybe more so Star Trek than Star Wars. Because we know Disney was jumping on the Star Wars bandwagon. They, they did hype up the movie back then. Um, and we know now that it wasn't as successful. They had incredible team working on it too. The article mentions that the production will be designed by Peter Ellenshaw. He was the matte painting artist for several Disney classics such as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Mary Poppins. A record of 150 matte paintings, nearly twice the amount used for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, are being used for this production. Reading an article like this would make me so excited to see the black hole. Yeah, and the visuals of it 
were spectacular. You know, it was more like the story and how it came together that didn't work. My brother and I saw it when it came out, and we were excited about it because the visuals were spectacular. They had incredible uh, people working with it. In fact, Danny Lee and his crew, others who, who have had years of work in the industry, were working on actual models. And, and I love the, the look of the black hole because it had physical models in it, not CGI. So it is spectacular to view. Avalanche isolates Empire crew. Finns, Norway. An avalanche has isolated the first unit of the crew of the Star Wars sequel, The Empire Strikes Back. The 80-member crew, including producer Gary Kurtz, director Irvin Kirshner, and cast members Mark Hamill and Peter Mayhew, was isolated for two days in the snowy terrain before railroad rescue parties could dig them out. The only access in and out of the rugged and remote location is by rail, Oslo to the east and Bergen to the west. Well, I don't remember hearing about that. At the time, not at all. But it's interesting to think about it. They had to fly to Norway to film the scenes based in Hoth. And you're talking about a remote area. All snow. This is a mishap that's bound to happen when you have an entire production crew filming in the area, but also building sets in the area. We're glad they got out. And, and I'm sure these days it, it wouldn't have been as horrendous. They would have been able to rescue them a lot faster. Fright Films Forming Fantasy freaks looking for a fear fix will be pleased to hear of the slew of horror pictures slated for release in the upcoming months. So 1979 has a ton of classic films. I mean, some are iconic even today. We know that Phantasm came out. You know that that was originally rated X for its extreme violence? Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Uh, but there was recut for a R rating. Also, Nightwing, The Amityville Horror, Silent Partner, The Changeling, Nocturna, Dracula's Granddaughter, It Fell from the Sky, The Fog. I mean, there's a ton of horror films that were coming out in 1979 or were slated to release, including American Werewolf in London. Yeah, that one was a big hit. A lot of those I never heard of, though. Yeah, these are all in production or slated to release later on in the year. And we can see this is prime time for Starlog to branch out and have its own horror-based magazine. Are you a fan of horror movies? Necronomicon Ex Mortis. The Book of the Dead. With all cult classics. Your move, creep. If you are, you'll love shocking things. Please search for us on all the major podcasting platforms. To see our social media and a direct link to our podcast, just go to anchor.fm slash shocking things. Special preview. Alien. When Alien movie came out in 1979, we're seeing that this was a crossroads of two distinct genres, science fiction and horror. Well, well, this article says it it was the first combination of the two, even though I'm not sure, but... uh... Well, 
you know, I argue that point. Some of the movies that we look, especially from the 1930s and 40s, that we consider classic horror movies, I view as science fiction. Frankenstein? Yeah, yes, that one had, yes, science and fiction. Um, I, th- I think what, what this writer is saying is, is more about the space element, even though I think there was one, you know, Leonard Nimoy was in Zad- Zombies of the Stratosphere, which I think was science fiction Good point. and horror. Yeah, I, I think even The Invisible Man, the H.G. Wells classic, is not filed under science fiction, it's filed under horror when you look at the universal monsters. So, in this sense, space horror, I would say that it's especially something that's grotesque. We have to, we have to realize horror of the seventies was totally different than horror of years past. And we both have to admit there are some grotesque scenes in Alien. Yes. And, um, especially the, the alien itself, which, which this article talks about the, they spent so much time on trying to make it look really scary and like nothing that anyone had seen before. And and they definitely succeeded in that. And, and I like how you said, like nothing anyone has ever seen before. Because the commentary in this article says that Fox is purposely holding back information from the public. If you watch the trailer, it doesn't show the alien. If you look at any of the pictures in early magazines especially like Starlog or Famous Monsters of Filmland there was nothing before the movie came out showing what the alien was the element of surprise must have been fantastic for people who saw it i know i was too young to see it my father and my grandfather saw it together and when they came back from the movie theaters, I remember saying, Dad, I want to see that. He goes, there is no way I'm bringing you to this movie. <laughs> well, this this was rated R, wasn't it? It was. Yes. It totally. Yeah, my dad wasn't going to bring me to see this as a little kid. There was there was a lot of buzz about how incredible this movie w- was going to be. We're at the point now where there's still people talking about it. It hasn't been released yet. And one of the big commentaries was, this is Fox's next Star Wars they they did say that, and I, I mean, yeah. How, how would you follow up Star Wars? Because yeah, 20th Century Fox did Star Wars, and then they wanted to do something else. But they didn't want it to be exactly the same. They didn't want to do the same kind of story. So horror was probably the next logical step. Absolutely. Here's a quote from Dan O'Bannon, who was the screenwriter who conceived the creature. He said, "This is not another special effects movie. We do have quite a few effects." But in pictures like Star Wars and Superman, every three minutes you're shown another Marvel and you say, wow, a special effect. I think that's great for films like that, but not for Alien. Nothing should detract from the reality of it once the basic premise is accepted. That would blow the suspense. And I have to say that Alien, when we watch it now, it stands the test of time. It has that gritty realism about it. It's still scary. No doubt, even though we know what the alien looks like now. But but to watch the movie, it still has the suspense. And um, yes, and everything in it does still look real because it was, it was mostly the, the people. The, mm-hmm. the effects were just were the things like the, um, the alien popping out and the splatter and all that, but not as much of the models of the ships in space and the dogfights. It wasn't that. That's right. It's interesting to note that Fox at this time was planning on previewing the movie in several cities to determine if it's too scary before they make the final cut. 
Well, they, they've done that with, with movies more recently too. I mean, yeah, they do the test audiences and sometimes like, I mean, I've heard even, even though it's an R-rated movie, they'll still test it with kids and the kids will say if it's too scary or not scary enough. Mm-hmm. And they're saying this is Fox's most expensive movie since Star Wars because they're putting so much involvement in every aspect of production, even in miniatures and in the sets. Now, we look at the miniatures. The ship is supposed to be a mile long. It's essentially a refinery in space. And you do get that scope and that magnitude of enormity when you see it floating. And, and that was a good visual. So that that was one of the one of the effects using that model, but since it was a model and not CGI, it looked mm-hmm. pretty real. Yeah, and also everything that's based on Giger's artwork, the the look of the bone, the structures having an organic feel to it, it was something that audiences at that time have never seen, and it's not like they could go to a junkyard and just piece things together. This all had to be crafted. So I I think Alien is such a beautiful mu- movie as well. When, when you think about those aspects of it, the artistry behind it. They were striving for originality, too, which is a little different from now because you have so many sequels and remakes these days, but this was something completely new. Oh, it was refreshingly new, no doubt about it. And it shows pictures in Starlog of Sigourney Weaver and how she was going to be the focal point in the movie. I mean, she was incredible. You want to talk about something that was refreshingly new for this time period? Absolutely. Having Ripley as the as the female hero, which was and, and it was also great to see a leading lady, which is something that's still talked about now. When uh, it's done now, yeah. people act like it's something new. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and Ripley was great in this as the female action hero. Incredible. And she was the voice of reason, not just an action hero. She was the sensible one. Oh yeah, and that's another thing. Yeah, it was it was just uh, seemed like such a change. It was so different for for what had been done back then. She was the only one who who really knew what was going on, and just couldn't get anyone to believe her. The funny thing is, this is Fox's next big project after Star Wars. The release date May twenty fifth. Same day as Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Except two years later. Presenting the world's greatest Mego monsters, Mego's new line of 14-inch action figure. Dracula has risen from the grave. 14-inch Mego figure. The monster Frankenstein lives again. 14-inch Mego figure. Fear the creature from the Black Lagoon. 14-inch Mego figure. 24 points of articulation, multiple accessories. Start your 14-inch figure collection today by Mego. Hey there, my name is R. Allen Seiler. I'm an author, publisher, musician, and one of the hosts of the Earth Station Trek podcast. Now, while I'm most definitely passionate about Trek, I'm mostly known around town for being a Doctor Who guy. I ran a Doctor Who convention for 16 years called Hulanta. I founded the local fan club called the Atlanta Gallifreyans. I've written four books, numerous essays, and even one song about the good doctor. So today I'm going to be talking about an article 
called Doctor Who, Britain's Time Traveler Arrives in the Colonies, uh, written by Ellen M. Mortimer. The, this episode, sorry, this article was written following the occasion of the show's 15th anniversary, which was November 1978, as Doctor Who is uh, really just starting to make a splash in the American television market. Um, this article isn't too much more than really just an introduction to the basic tenets of the show. But at that time, very few Americans would have known anything at all about it. In fact, most people would never have even heard of it. The British exports that we were familiar with at the time were things like The Prisoner, um, The Avengers, of course, which was carried by ABC, the American Broadcasting Company, and Jerry Anderson shows like The Thunderbirds, UFO was in some markets, and especially Space 1999. Uh, now, uh, Space 1989 was a very different animal than what we're going to be talking about uh, tonight because um, even though it was British produced, it was geared very specifically toward the American market with the two leads being Americans as well as uh, some of the writers and directors. So Doctor Who had originally tried to break into the U.S. market in the early 70s with John Pertwee playing the third Doctor. But it never really caught on like it would later on. It wasn't until the first four seasons of The Fourth Doctor, played by the eccentric Tom Baker, were picked up by PBS stations across the country in 1978 that the show really started to catch fire here. And it did so by remaining peculiarly and specifically British, unlike uh, the approach that Space 1999 took. So with many Americans getting their first exposure to this 15-year-old show, Starlog provides basically a starter's guide of sorts. Um, the information that's included in the article all sounds, um, you know, kind of old hat now as we're coming up on the show's 60th anniversary. But at that time, things like the Doctor's age, his time machine, his enemies – etc., would all be sort of new and exciting to the growing American audience. Uh, the article covers all the basics like what a police box is and why the Doctor's ship is called the TARDIS and who his companions are and that sort of thing. The article does, uh, it, 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 it does a really good job of capturing uh, the feel of that time, 1978, the early days of Doctor Who, uh, sort of finding its footing in America. And it has a, a lot of like quotes from, uh, writers and directors, um, from the show, Matt Irvine, who worked on the special effects on the show and, uh, Tom Baker himself, uh, which really kind of gives a reader who's new to the show a real kind of solid introduction to who it is that's making this show. Um, and there's one really interesting quote from Tom himself. Um, and he says, I really enjoy being a Saturday afternoon hero, and I love playing the doctor. The role is not really an acting part in that it never develops fundamentally. The doctor will never become interested in romance, violence, or power. So he's limited in that way. He's really very goody-goody, and like any other television 
hero, basically. So the actor in the role must become inventive within those limitations to become amusing and exciting to the audience in different ways. And I really think that that is sort of the element that really started to catch Americans' attention. First of all, that this show is um, very, very specifically British. It doesn't try to mask that or water it down in any way like uh, Space 1999 maybe tried to do. Um, there is, it, it doesn't dumb down anything for its American audience. Americans who are watching this show really have to kind of catch on as they go. And I think that's such a intelligent and such a smart approach. But I think the real thing that um, stands out is the uniqueness of Tom Baker. Um, he is, in a lot of ways, the most alien of the portrayals of the Doctor. So he he plays the fourth incarnation of this Time Lord. And there's just something special about his portrayal, about what he brings to this part, about the way that his mannerisms, his expressions, his humor jump off the screen I mean, you feel everything that he is conveying to you. Um, another element is that for the first two and a half seasons that Tom is in the role, he has the same companion, and that is uh, Sarah Jane Smith, played by Elizabeth Sladen. And the uh, chemistry between these two is so strong. And it's not a like a romantic chemistry or anything like that. They're just best friends who are just kind of knocking about the universe and having adventures. And there's something so different about that show and about that relationship and about those characters. That's unlike anything else that was happening on American television at the time. Um, you know, certainly PBS stations showed a lot of British programming, particularly sort of like the, the masterpiece classics that we think of today. Um, there was a lot of that stuff. And like um, Upstairs, Downstairs was huge on PBS. But those are all sort of like period dramas. Um, this was something completely different. Doctor Who certainly could be a period drama sometimes, or it could be futuristic, or it could take place on modern day Earth. It was different every single story. What I really enjoyed about this article was that it really brought me back to that time when I was uh, starting out as a Doctor Who viewer. Um, this article, since it was written uh, following the show's 15th anniversary, was a little earlier than when I came to the show. For Americans my age who were, you know, kind of into this sort of thing, I was sort of a late bloomer. It wasn't until the show's 20th anniversary that I jumped on board. Uh, I used to have this friend that I would hang out with, and she would tell me things about this show that she watched that just sounded utterly bizarre. And uh, it just didn't sound interesting, and I didn't understand it, and I just didn't get it. Um, and I remember there was one night that uh, she and I were going to go out to a movie, and I was at home, you know, kind of getting ready, and I was about to leave to pick her up and, you know, go to whatever movie it was that we were going to be going to. And I had the TV on PBS for some reason. And this show was on 
that just looked like the silliest thing I'd ever seen. And I'd had no idea that it was Dr. Who. And what I, you know, didn't know at the time was that it was, uh, an episode of a story called the stones of blood. So I go to pick my friend up and, you know, we're like getting in the car and we're going to go to our movie. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I watched this thing on television tonight. And it was the silliest thing I've ever seen. And there was this robot dog and there was these big rock monsters and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, well, that was Doctor Who. And she was clearly not happy with my assessment of her favorite show as, you know, being sort of a silly, whatever it was. Um, but she kept telling me stuff about the show and she kept saying things. And it more and more really got me intrigued. And it really started to pique my interest and pique my curiosity. And I started asking questions and I started asking, you know, well, what does, you know, when you say this, what does that mean? That kind of thing. And so, you know, we're coming up to like, we're in November of 83 and she says, okay, look, uh, this Saturday night is the show's 20th anniversary and PBS is showing this special anniversary episode called The Five Doctors. So, uh, why don't you come over and watch it with me? And I said, okay, well, you know, I'll do that. So I came over, sat on her living room floor and for 90 minutes, I was just mind boggled. I mean, this show made no sense. It confused the heck out of me, but it also grabbed me, grabbed my attention. And I was absolutely 100% hooked, even though I had no idea what was going on. And I remember saying things like, so who is this guy? And she goes, well, that's the doctor. And then a few minutes later, I go, well, who is that guy? And she goes, well, that's the doctor. And then a third character would come on. I said, well, who's that? And she goes, that's the doctor. And I was like, how can all these people be the doctor? So it was it was a mind-blowing experience. But man, was I uh, absolutely hooked. So that was a special episode that uh, PBS was showing. They were actually in the middle of their, the early part of the Tom Baker years uh, in their normal broadcasts. And so uh, the PBS station that I watched, which was uh, WEDU out of Tampa, Florida, used to show Doctor Who on weeknights in the episodic format, which was one episode per night. And then again on Saturday evenings um, in the sort of like edited all together omnibus presentation, um, which I later found out was two different packages that were sold by the distributor Lionheart. So my, my PBS station was essentially paying twice for Dr. Who wants to get the episodic package and wants to get the omnibus package. So they would show the individual episodes on weeknights, Monday through Friday, usually around 11 o'clock, sometimes as late as midnight. And there was something really magical and really special about this show sort of unfolding chapter by chapter. And, you know, 11, 11.30, midnight, whatever it was, rolls around and I'm watching, um, you know, got PBS on and I'm just sitting there waiting for it to come on. And then the opening credits come on and then this 25 minute chapter of a story happens and then it ends with a cliffhanger and you have to wait until the following night to find out what happened. And it was so thrilling and so exciting. And as I said, nothing like anything else that was on American television. 
Um, of course, when this, when these episodes were originally broadcast in England, it was once per week, Saturday nights. So once you got your 25 minute episode in and it ended on a cliffhanger, you had to wait till uh, the following Saturday, a whole week later to find out what happened next. So at least for me having to wait one night, you know, it didn't seem so bad, but it was such a thrill that the, the cliffhanger became such an important part of the show to me. Um, and just seeing the way that these uh, stories unfolded and the relationship between uh, Tom and Liz was so engaging. Um, it, it was just a really, really special time. And it was something that I uh, remember fondly forever, you know. So, I mean, I, you know, went on later, much later in life to um, run Doctor Who conventions and stuff like that. So, uh, the thing that I really enjoyed about this, uh, I'm sorry, about this Starlog, um, article is that it really sort of brought me back to that time when I was a new Whovian and was discovering the show for the first time and how much had this article been written five years later, how much it would have meant to me to have that kind of thing, you know, this sort of starter guide, because what, what I actually did get, um, around the 20th anniversary of the show was that the radio times, which is sort of the TV guide of uh, England published a 20th anniversary magazine. So it was an entire magazine devoted to the history of Dr. Who. And it was uh, republished in, in, you know, front to back exactly the same by Starlog in America. So thanks to Starlog, I did get that starter guide that I so desperately needed as I was jumping into the show and had no clue about. So this magazine is, is still one of my favorite magazines I've ever read. It was um, basically, it laid out the whole history of Doctor Who for n- new viewers. Um, it talked about all the doctors from William Hartnell up through at that time, um, the second season of the fifth doctor, Peter Davison had aired. There was a little bit of a preview of the, uh, stories that were coming along in the following season. And then the first interview with Colin Baker, who had just been cast as the sixth doctor. So it talked about, um, who all the doctors were and, and how the show was made and then gave a one or two sentence synopsis of every story from 1963 on up through at that point, 1984, since it had little previews of the coming season. And I devoured that magazine. I read every word of it over and over and over and over because I was insatiable for anything that I could find about Dr. Who. And this magazine for a while was the only thing that I had and I studied it. So thanks to Starlog, I had this, you know, this whole article that was published in 1978 sort of expanded into an entire magazine, uh, in 83. And it was, it meant everything to me at that point. So, um, thanks for, uh, sitting with me t- and listening to all this and for me recounting my origins as a Whovian and talking about this article from Starlog magazine. If you would like to hear more from me and from some of my friends, definitely check out the Earth Station Trek podcast where we talk about um, all the Star Treks from uh, the early shows up through the current things that are playing now on Paramount+. Plus. Um, you can find Hulanta. 
uh, at hulanta.com or on Facebook or Twitter or any of those kind of things. And you can find my publishing company, Cosmic Press, um, at Cosmic Press, which is K-O-Z-M-I-C press.com or on Facebook or Twitter or any of the socials. Um, I have written, uh, three Doctor, well, three Doctor Who books. I've got one called, uh, Doctor Who's Greatest Hits. I've got one called The Children of Time, The Companions of Doctor Who, and one called Facing the Raven, Doctor Who Series 9 in Review, which was about the second Peter Capaldi season. Um, so check out all of those. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out with me. And, uh, if you haven't delved into Doctor Who, uh, Find one of those resources that I just mentioned and jump in. Of course, there's a lot more to take in now that the show is almost 60 years old than there was in 1978 when it was only 15 years old. But it's definitely worth the investigation because it's an amazing and unique show. everyone, this is Lisa, TI51047, representing the Mid-South Garrison. And this is Marcus, TK14057, also representing the Mid-South Garrison. We are uh, uh, from the 501st Legion, in case that wasn't apparent. Alright, so today we're talking about an article simply called David Prowse from Starlog Magazine number 23, which was released in June 1979. I wasn't even born yet. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, six. Okay, you can say that, but I can't. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so to put this into perspective, it has been just over two years since the release of Star Wars and just under a year away from Empire Strikes Back. So um, with regard to Star Wars, uh, David Prowse, of course, played the physical form of Darth Vader in episodes four through six. Yep. And before we start about the, before we start talking about the article, Lisa, do you have a personal experience with Mr. Prowse? Um, I wouldn't call it personal, but um, I did have the opportunity to meet him um, once at Disney's Hollywood Studios back then called... Disney MGM Studios at one of the very um, early Star Wars weekends. Um, that's when they were really tiny. It was literally just like maybe one, maybe two weekends. But, um, you know, I'd only seen Star Wars, like each movie at one time at that time. Wasn't really a Star Wars fan. So um, I met this tall guy backstage and I knew he was from Star Wars. And so I just assumed he was Chewbacca, you know, <laughs> sure. tall, tall guy. And my friend's like, no, oh, that's, that's Darth Vader, it's Darth Vader. And I was like, no, Darth Vader's a black guy. It's <laughs> James Earl Jones, right? And they're like, no, that's Darth Vader. So I was like, holy crap, you know, this is... But, um, yeah, I just met him. He was a really cool guy. Um, always very friendly backstage with um, the cast members that worked at Disney. So, yeah, that was, was pretty awesome. Do you remember the year? Oh, 90... Oh, gosh, now I've aged myself. 97... <laughs> Okay, yeah, so right around maybe. the release of the special editions. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, my personal story is um, is uh, a few years back, uh, before that. So 1994, I, I'm from Germany. Back then, I still lived in Germany. And it was during the Men Behind the Masks autograph tour um, that also featured Kenny Baker, Warwick Davis, uh, Peter Mayhew, and Jeremy Bullock. 
and I got a an autographed picture of Mr. Prowse, and also I I'm not sure how I got to this. Um, I think it was a I'm not sure what it was, but I got a one day pass plus a personal training from Dave Prowse at Dave Prowse Star Gym in London. <clears throat> so in my hand, I'm holding this 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 pass. On the front, there's um, a picture of Darth Vader, uh, a picture of um, Mr. Prowse, and on the back, um, the gym details. So I never made it to this, to this um, star gym. I'm sure it's um, not there anymore. Um, David Prowse passed last year, but I'm sure this gym um, has been closed, I believe, much earlier than that. But that's my personal story. And again, I'm still holding this. I'm still have this. I still have this one day pass, but this will never come to fruition, unfortunately. So now we are heading to the article itself. So Lisa said this was from Starlog, 23 June 1979. Lisa, do you want to take us in? Um, sure. So this was um, in between episodes four and five, <clears throat> and at this time, you know, um, David had done. For episode four, and he had done a few um, other appearances where he did not have uh, a mask on, and um, one of them being the Edge of Night. And I just remember my mom watching that and really hearing, yeah, never heard of know. this before. And I forgot, like you know, there was it was a was it a movie? No, it was a series, a TV series. Oh, okay. Um, but I remember that, and you know, again, I'm I'm young, I didn't really know much about it, but um, at that point, you know, he had done just one movie, and you know, he was just getting into his, you know, newfound fame of being Darth Vader. Sure. So, um, yeah. you know, he was kind of getting established as the image, as, you know, as the Darth Vader. Sure. The, um, in the beginning of the article, I mentioned the uh, Green Cross man that he famously um, did over decades. Um, this was a, uh, based on the Green Cross code, he, this was a road safety program in the UK aimed, for, aimed at children. So that's how he <clears throat> also became uh, well-known, you know, without the mask. So in the article, I saw that um, the magazine asked him if he has established an image for himself as the Darth Vader. And what do you think he said? Did he say yes or no? Well, no, I'm guessing he'll say yes at that <laughs> point. You know, the movie was a hit. Yeah. And, you know, he knew there would be, you know, two more films afterward. And, you know, he in his mind, felt like it was, you know, a financial security thing at that point. He wasn't thinking about the long-term fame or the, the fandom as it is today. He just mm -hmm. felt like, oh, I can like, pay the bills and my kids can eat, you know? Yeah. Um, at that point, it was a job, but a job that he was very happy would lead to more jobs and, and more jobs with, with the Star Wars um, franchise. That's true. He talked about his um, getting a percentage uh, for Empire, um, you know, a percentage of the, <clears throat> of the income. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he was um, really counting on, on. Uh, I mean, he was offered a, a cash deal or or a percentage, and he opted for the for the percentage. <clears throat> um, he mentioned uh, tax problems in or terrible terrible tax problems in England. Um, that <clears throat> if you were to take a lump sum, you could pay up to eighty three percent of its tax of of it in taxes, which is crazy if you think about it. Um, so if you pay your agent and then the, the, uh, income tax or the, uh, what the sales tax, I don't know. Um, you could end up with nothing. So, 
he was um, definitely probably definitely doing the right choice with the with the percentage. Um, how that ended up is a different story because I read somewhere else that he didn't um, get much yeah. um, because of uh, because of quote Hollywood accounting. That, that's that's a term. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But um, you know, Starlock asked him, you know, if he thought the sequels would expand the Darth Vader role, and what if he just said nope, <laughs> and then that's it, like mm-hmm. movie over, you know, movie's over. But um, you know, he thought in his you know, his mind, and yes, it was true that Vader had become, um, you know, the cult figure of the film, and he had done a, an appearance outside of San Francisco in Union City with um. Tony, um, Tony Daniels, Tony. C-3PO, yeah, yep. he, calls, he calls him Tony. I call him Tony too. Yeah, we're <laughs> close. But um, with Anthony Daniels, and he said that um, you know Anthony had attracted like eleven hundred people, and you know he drew over like five thousand, yep. and you know that really sealed the fate, sealed the idea for him that you know oh they're really watching the film for Vader. You know, everyone else was just fluff. Yeah, but, but you know he carried the film. That's true. <laughs> and then the next, the next uh, question by Starlock, or the next comment was um, that there is going to be a new villain in Empire um, who appeared in the um, Star Wars, the um, well-known Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> um, so yeah, he he knew about it. You know, again, this is June nineteen seventy nine. Uh, the movie came out in May of nineteen eighty. So. He has probably not been, um, based on his article, a bit later on, he has not filmed anything yet. He has not even received really any lines, but um, he knew about the character called Boba Fett. And, yeah, um, it's because it had a, because Kenner had a, Kenner Toys had a dinner in LA and he was invited yeah. and he said there was, you know, this this guy walking around in, a, you know, the Boba Fett costume and I guess he was you know, kind of getting... Um, promoting himself because, you know, there'd be merchandise and people would be curious about, you know, who's this character, you know, in, in the armor with the helmet on, another, yep. another helmeted character, you know, they make him interested in the film, so I'm going to get some business drummed up. Sure. Yeah. He mentioned, uh, he knew he was a bounty hunter and uh, he was going after Han Solo. The, um, it further mentions, let me pull this up here real quick, that... Uh, this is more of a Boba Fett. So he, Starlock asked, so is he going to be a major character? And David said, yes, for sure. He'll be my assistant. <laughs> like <laughs> sitting in the office typing letters and yeah. <laughs> getting coffee. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, interesting how that obviously turned out, which was not the case. But the, um, what else is he telling us? He's telling us, you know, bits and pieces here about um, the new director, Irving Kirshner. And uh, what else do we have here? Um, he, again, he, he said he has not seen a copy of the script yet. They might be sending him some dialogue. Um, so, yeah, it's it's pre- pretty much what he heard was probably just, uh, I'm not sure from whom. Yeah. You know, I don't know if George uh, Lucas told him anything about that or, you know, how he knew. Because he, he further mentioned... And then we can come come back to the um, his future plans of Star Wars. Yeah. He further mentioned that you know you can you can see some like some some scarred skin or skin you know some scar tissue, um, you know in the movie. So you know which which you know which which became true for Empire. So Lisa, get us uh, talk us through the uh, his ten year his ten year working plan here. <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> what he uh, say? No, it's not funny. But um, you know, Starlock had asked him if. 
he had signed up for any of the future Star Wars sequels. And at that point, you know, he already knew that, you know, that New Hope, well, not even New Hope back then, you know, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi were actually the, um, the fourth, fifth, and sixth movies in the in mm-hmm. the series, and that there would be episodes one, two, and three coming out. So, you know, in his, what, what he was, you know, feeling at that point was, you know, well, he'd do, you know, Empire and Return of the Jedi, and then he probably wouldn't be in episode one, but definitely he would, you know, be in episodes two and three, and then, as we know, there was no Vader as we know it from the original trilogy right. in the prequels, and right. I wonder how that, you know, affected him at that yeah. point. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't more than ten years, you know, yeah. between like Jedi years. and Phantom Menace was sixteen years. Yeah, sixteen years. So, so he had, um, and you know, he he assumed he wouldn't even be in Phantom Menace, so that's even he got that one farther right, down though. the street. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, he mentioned again, like I mentioned earlier, he mentioned, uh, you know, there's some breathing tubes and, and back of his head is visible and face is disfigured. He all, you know, this was all in uh, what he thought would happen, which, which you know, would, would, would come true. Yeah. Um, He's pretty hopeful, though, that, you know, if they killed him off, you know, because his character had a mask on for most of the movie, that he could portray a different character yeah. um, in later films, you know, because... People wouldn't know what it looked like, really, because, you know, either he had the helmet on or the one scene that we do see of him with the helmet off, he's disfigured, so he could get away with playing a different character and several yep. different characters. Yep. There's another um, interesting section here in this in this article where Starlog asked him if the fame has, you know, changed him or changed his family. Um, and he said, um, absolutely not. Like, his family is so down-to-earth. They are not the slightest interested in show business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, he finds it a bit of a problem because his life is becoming more show business. He has, at that time, he had uh, three kids, um, a boy of 13, a boy of 11, and a girl of 8. And they, again, don't seem to be affected by anything that he does. Um the back to the the green cross uh, man that he did for green cross code he was um you know he was again they were not impressed in in a way they were i think uh further down in the article they mentioned that they the kids never seen him perform right mm-hmm. and it was interesting to see his kids perform you know perform uh, see him perform um, because they back then I mean then they were proud yeah. of him doing this this kind of stuff right because right. It, it kind of it spoke to the kids there's a picture of of him dressed up as the green coat man you know um, fa- facing children and, and uh, we don't see the children's expressions I mean actually there are two children looking at him but they're definitely you know seem to be enthralled and, and, and listening yeah. Yeah. I find it interesting that they were like, like proud of him with doing that, and I'd have been mortified if my dad had shown up in a green cross coat <laughs> costume, yeah. you know, talking to kids at the crosswalk. I'm like, no, are you Darth Vader, Dad? Put the helmet on and the cape. But yeah. I wonder. That was after the first movie. I wonder how much that changed after second and third films. If his kids eventually kind of grew into the right, right. cool, like, oh, yeah, my dad's Vader, dude, watch out, you know. Right. And they, oh, yeah, I wonder. If, trash. I wonder if they ever like accompanied him in any like you know 
tours, like like convention tours. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I he couldn't... did say in the article that you know he invited them to come to one of the Star Wars shoots, and they were like, "Nah." Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. But then, like the neighbor, <laughs> you know, he buys old pumps and dismantles them and sells them. You know, they got invited to his workshop, his factory, and the kids were like, <laughs> "Yeah, cool, it's awesome." But yeah, but your dad's Vader, and you don't care. Yeah, and they said, uh, "Oh, that's rubbish." <laughs> yeah, like uh, rubbish. when it comes to him watching him on TV. Um, so he goes back to again talking about the Green Cross Code um, television uh, specials that he did, or the ads that he did, and, and uh, so it's um, the fame that he got, the public fame. You know, maybe not so much as Darth Vader, but definitely as the Green. Crossman that um, got a bit too much for his wife. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, you know, she they went to dinner and then the waiter comes up to me and says, "Excuse me, are you?" And and he would say, "Yep, I am." And he asked for an autograph. And then other people come over. And then uh, before long, he was signing autographs for everyone in the restaurant. And uh, his wife would say, "I'm not coming with yeah. you to this ever again." <laughs> But you notice how in the, in the article it said it just said excuse me are you dot 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 they didn't say what they yes. asked him if he was because they probably didn't you know yeah no I mean they knew him as Darth Vader but they didn't ever see him as Darth Vader right. so what if they said hey aren't you the guy that was in the Edge of Night that broke up with that one girl <laughs> who had the fight like you know what I mean I mean if anybody comes up to you and says aren't you and you would you know you would say yes yeah you know, I don't care. Um, if anybody would have come to me and say, aren't you? I'd say, uh, sure, I'm Marcus, yeah. <laughs> What's up? Um, so, you know, the he had one worry. Like, you know, the, the fame, again, the fame that, that uh, he encountered, the public fame, he said he was worried at one point, at one point, that his children might be attracting friends um, because of his father, you know, which happens. Um, but uh, he said... Um, in the end, it all worked out pretty much. Yeah, again, I think that um, again, that was after the first film where they were disinterested. But you know, again, as time went on, and you know, at that point, I wonder where he was even living. Like, was he living in an affluent part of town with other actors and actresses, or was he just living in Joe Schmoville? Uh, I, I know was, like, where the kid on the I block. know where he like lived up to, up until his death, and that was like in just a regular neighborhood, yeah. just in a smaller house, and you know. Like, they were all, like, it was, like, a row of, of, of townhomes, so mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that's where he grew up or where he um, um, lived as an adult, but... So, that kind of sums up the article, I would say. What do you think? Is there anything else in here that... Um, well, from, as far as the Star Wars... Right, right. He um, talked about other stuff, like yeah. Superman and, and Flesh Gordon, um, that he um, didn't get in the end. You know, like, he was actually hoping to get, to be Superman, um, yeah. But then um, he didn't. He only trained. And also, he's supposed to be um, do Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Right. But they eventually, like, he wanted more money, so they went with Peter Mayhew. Yes, I said, exactly. See, I told you they were the same person. Told you they interchangeable. Chewbacca, Darth Vader, James Earl Jones, all the same person. <laughs> sure, sure. Outer space, the famous TARDIS brings Time Lord, Doctor Who, and the amazing Leela, ready to do battle against their mighty enemies, the fearful Cybermen, the giant robot, and one of the deadly Daleks, 
Whilst Leela covers him, the Doctor reaches the TARDIS in time and disappears to escape from the dark. Doctor Who, Leela, the fearful inhabitants of outer space, and the TARDIS. From Dennis Fisher. Fantastic. Starlog Magazine, issue number 24. Cover date, July 1979. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction and fact. Superman 2, ready for flight. Warner Brothers has confirmed reports that Christopher Reeve and producers Alexander and Alia Salkind have reached agreement on the Superman sequel, now planned to restart shooting this summer, tentatively, tentatively on July 30th. Reports say that Reeve's renegotiated contract calls for a $500,000 payment for the sequel an amount nearly equal to Reeves' total income from the first film, and the payment of over $1 million for Reeves' work on a third Superman adventure. Well, this is an interesting article about what has been going on in the past year with regards to Christopher Reeve and his payment through this unique filming process. And since then, now movies have to pay this was a pivotal point in movie history because he essentially filmed two two movies at once. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Superman, the first one and the second one, were filmed at the same time. So this is saying that they're going to reshoot some things for Superman 2. Correct. We have a new director that's working his way in. Richard Donner has been asked to leave. And so now Richard Lester is taking over. And here's the unique thing that has changed how... Those who work on movies that are filmed at the same time, uh, their, their payment structure is different. Because you think about it, Christopher Reeve and everyone else filmed the movie, two movies at once, and they got one paycheck for it. But the box office numbers and those who are the, – the studios are essentially getting paid twice because they're releasing two movies out of one movie's worth of work essentially. We know that modern day that's been done. The Lord of the Rings trilogy was filled all at once. Okay, so so his contract had to be renegotiated because the first movie made so much money and he wanted more for the second. That's right. And you got to figure the studios were double dipping at this point, paying everyone one fee but then releasing things two different times. This is the first time something like this has ever been done before. I think he, he still worked... He probably worked double the hours too. I mean, we're doing two movies. They probably, um, you know, you know, he worked a number of hours for for making two movies. So in that way, he did get get a paycheck that should have reflected that that all the time that he spent was enough for two movies. Mm-hmm. But but I do understand, yeah, that that he should have gotten more because it it made so much money and he was the star. And also, it says Reeves had a concern about the original concept of the sequel would be carried through because we know that there's two cuts of Superman 2, two versions of it. And Christopher Reeves was really backing Richard Donner. Yeah, I didn't really like the Richard Donner cut as much. I like elements of it, but I I think that's the best way to describe it is I like elements of it, but the original version I've seen so many times that it's ingrained in me and that anything that deviates from it feels awkward to me. Yeah, that's the one we're used to. Superman, the pinball game. The cooperation of the Bally Manufacturing Corporation and Atari, Inc. 
allows Starlog to give readers an early look at their newest pinball machines. So one of the newest pinball machines is coming out is the Superman pinball machine. And this draws the entire visual inspiration from the comic book original, but because of the success of the movie, they wanted to focus in on Lex Luthor and Lois Lane. We love going to retro arcade games and playing this and other games. Yeah, this is the era of pinball machines, and it's it's kind of funny how when you think about it, all this retro stuff is coming back. Not only are these arcades popping up all over the place with pinball machines from the 70s and 80s, but there's also revamped and newer versions of them coming out as well, playing them side by side. And a lot of kids now are enjoying these. I mean, like, like they came out when we were kids. This is really a retro thing, but, but they're... But they're bringing back the old machines, and and even kids are enjoying them now. Science Fiction Efforts Awarded The Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films recently presented their sixth annual awards, broadcast nationally via syndication in late May. And here are some of the major winners. Best Science Fiction Film Superman Best Fantasy Film Heaven Can Wait Best Horror Film The Wicker Man Best Actor Warren Beatty in Heaven Can Wait Best Actress Margot Kidder in Superman Best Music John Williams, Superman Best Special Effects Colin Chilvers, Superman Looks like Superman has taken away a lot of awards. And deservedly so. We have an advertisement for Fantastica Magazine, which would be renamed Fangoria Magazine. And it's around this time that Fangoria would be published. It was supposed to come out earlier in the year, but a variety of things caused them to change things over, one being the name Fantastica. They had to change it to Fangoria because it was viewed that there was a competing magazine to Starlog called Fantastic Films, and they felt there might be some miscommunication of who was producing this new horror-based magazine. So at the last minute, they had to call it and, and retitle it and change the fonts and everything to Fangoria. If it was going to be a horror magazine, I mean, Fangoria is more fitting. Oh, I think so, too. It's interesting when you look at this ad, it says... A phantasmagoric flight into sheer imagination. Here at last is a magazine that will explore the outer limits of imagination, offering glimpses of both far-out science fiction and far-out fantasy. Hobbits, horrors, and hideous invaders from outer space will join forces, each issue with the real-life artists who create them, to bring you the best of movie and TV creature features. So, wow, at the beginning... And we know the first six issues of Fangoria magazine had that somewhat horror aspect to it, but it branched out into fantasy a lot too. So they were still struggling at the early days of Fangoria to to find their footing, what they were going to be. They, they did have other things besides horror. I think they just wanted to use horror as their. They were trying to use it as the main thing, but I mean, but it's hard to find enough articles about it because it wasn't. Like, there weren't really that many horror movies to have a whole magazine. So, yeah, they branched out into other things. And and it was still a viable magazine. I mean, I, I know people still bought it. 
it wasn't it's been said that historically it wasn't until issue seven that it really started making money and it started grounding footed footing in in the genre community because of the fact that they were focusing more you got to figure by the seventh issue the 80s was rolling around and that was the era of slasher films we already had famous monsters of film land that's been on the newsstand for decades so horror fans are already buying famous monsters of film land but this new type of horror that is slasher didn't get enough representation in famous monsters or other magazines and that is when fangoria let go of the coverage of crossover science fiction fantasy and really focus in on all the new movies that were exploding in the early 80s it was good for them that they were already in place and 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 so this other new genre just broke out, and yes. they were already there ready for it. That That's cool. Totally, totally. And when we look at the cover of Fangoria number 1, it has Godzilla on the cover. A, a classic monster. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, I'm Dacre Stoker, great-grandnephew of Bram Stoker. Whenever I want to hear about classic science fiction, I turn on Starpod Log. Starlog Magazine, three-year anniversary. So the bulk of this magazine now is reflecting on the past three years of Starlog's publishing. I mean, it gives us a lot of photo memories and ideas that were presented for the past three years in Starlog. Things such as Star Wars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Superman, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Buck Rogers, Battlestar Galactica, Space 1999. And it's a homage to the publishing efforts of Carrie O'Quinn. What were some of your favorite moments in the past three years of Starlog? Well, definitely the, the Star Trek articles and uh, Susan Sackett's motion picture report. And and David Gerald's articles, his his um, opinion column that covered so many different things, and and it was his articles in Starlog that really made me a fan of his. It's interesting that you say that because Starlog started out initially as being a Star Trek magazine, but they realized that they couldn't produce an all Star Trek magazine legally. They couldn't do that; it would be problematic. But if they had something that focused in that branched out to all science fiction. They could do something with it. And so we see that Starlog always has Star Trek comments in there and Star Trek categories. But it's the branching out to other realms of sci-fi and fantasy that made it flourish to a wider audience. Yes, having articles on Star Wars and, and other popular That movies. was huge at the time. That's one of my favorite covers of all time. Yes. Is a Star Wars issue. It's absolutely beautiful, and Starlog is credited as being one of the earliest magazines to give full coverage report on Star Wars. Because no one really knew that it would be a big success at first. So, so yeah, they they reported on it back when nobody knew what it was. Yeah, that was Starlog magazine number seven. That was just epic in scope of giving fans what they wanted to see—just stills, snapshots of the film. This is the time period that the average person didn't have a VCR. This is all fans had, were magazines. And Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think their coverage of that was wonderful. 
Yeah, Starlog was also at, at the right time for for these uh, blockbuster movies too. So the magazine was there, and then and then all these great movies came out that they could report on. It helped both the movies and the magazine. And the funny thing is, we tend to look over when we're reviewing issues of Starlog for the podcast. We tend to look at the other magazines in our collection that were of that era, because by the seventy seven seventy eight, there were a lot of Starlog knockoff magazines. Fantastic films. There was a host of others. That's that's the only one that that ran more than a dozen issues. But the interesting thing is, Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was a pillar in the genre community for years, they actually started changing their articles to be more up to date and more sci fi oriented. Because Famous Monsters of Filmland tended to focus in on the classic monster movies, the black and white ones. But now Starlog was even influencing long-standing horror magazine giant to be more up-to-date and to broaden the scope into science fiction. I think you can only focus on the old stuff so much because there's there's new audiences, new um, you know younger people with money now who who want to know about the modern stuff. And yeah, so these the the fans of the the old stuff are still out there, but but they still want to see what the new stuff is and, and even how it relates to the old movies. And that's something unique about Starlog is because for the first three years of publication, we see that there were still retro articles in there, articles that were influenced by famous monsters of the film land, showing us what sci-fi was like in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Yeah, yeah the first few issues of Starlog had more of the... Um, Articles about the older movies, and and they were interesting. But I mean, but it, it's so good that they that they started having more articles on the modern movies. Yeah, we see it early on. It was would you say something like a fifty fifty split, and then it started being a sixty forty, seventy thirty. I think because of the fact that we were getting more new information in in the world of science fiction, not just in literature, which has always been there, but we're getting more TV shows and movies. Things like Superman. Yeah, like there, there were more um, of the modern movies t- to talk about. That's right. Previous to 77, before the breakout of Star Wars, you would get maybe a space movie once a year, twice a year, maybe every other year. But we're at the point now of studios are pumping them out as fast as they can. And the whole comic book genre of movies... I say started with Superman because it was such a hit. Yeah, for as far as superhero movies, I mean there there were you know Superman movies in black and white serials, but yeah, but this one was really the first big one that hit mainstream and that made a lot of money, and it was just everywhere. So they they definitely had to continue that. And we're seeing coverage of television shows more so, coverage of Buck Rogers, coverage of Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, and again, there were, there were more shows on TV. and there, Yeah, because those were the new shows at the time, and they could report on that. And it was, you know, it was great for, for us as fans, too, having these more sci-fi shows on TV than just the reruns all the time. I think a big frustration for me within the first three years of publishing Starlog is that because they desperately wanted to do, and, and this was publisher Cary O'Quinn's baby of, of all these movies that he grew up with, all these TV shows that he grew up with. Sometimes there was too much emphasis on the retro, and they weren't putting enough coverage on the current. 
Like, I really feel bad that there wasn't a ton of articles about Wonder Woman, Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman. I think it got crowded out because of that retro feel that, that the first maybe five or six issues had. Yeah, the magazine had to figure out what it was doing and and figure out uh, what, what they needed to, to sell more copies. And so later on it did become the, um, the, the current films and TV shows. I did like the fact that even though Space 1999 was off the air, there's still a ton of Jerry Anderson fans, and Jerry Anderson had a semi-regular column, The Space Report. And so we were still keeping getting up-to-date news about the world of Space 1999, getting questions from readers about this production, as well as other Jerry Anderson productions. So we do see there's a lot of Jerry Anderson material in the first three years of Starlog. He, he was another pioneer of, of sci-fi shows. So, so yeah, they, they sort of kept the, um, you know, the, these well-known producers alive and kept them going in, in popularity. I did like the fact, though, whenever they had anything in the realm of television that would be considered newsworthy to those geeks like us who wanted to find out what was going on with the Doctor Strange television movie or the Incredible Hulk show, or the Spider-Man special. How about Shazam? There were some articles on it. We weren't totally lost of, of television. Even having an entire issue that the cover was dedicated to the Star Wars holiday special. You look back at that <laughs> and say, this is priceless. Yeah, one of those classic things that people hate, but it, but it's a classic, so you still have to talk about it. In fact, quite a few actors, writers, producers wrote well wishes to Starlog with regard to the third year anniversary. Martin Landau wrote to Starlog saying, To all the gang at Starlog, congratulations on your birthday. The magazine continues to be the very best of its kind in the country, in the world for that matter. Perhaps even the universe. Keep up the good work. Yeah, this was one of the, I, one of the things I used to love these Starlog anniversary issues where they would do that. They would type up the letters, but then also have the um the actor's autograph. I mean, what what was probably their signature on the handwritten letter. It is really cool to look at because you have tons of celebrity autographs all over these pages underneath their commentary. Yeah, so it would be a great way to try to authenticate someone's autograph if you had some old photograph or something. Forrest J. Ackerman wrote, Where were you 53 years ago when I needed you? I began reading science fiction in 1926 and noting... Scienty Film, Metropolis, and The Lost World around the same time. Thanks to your readers for contributing to the care and feeding of the hungry white dinosaur, my sci-fi museum. Your publications are preserved here. We know Forrest J. Ackerman is the publisher of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Yeah, he, he was a fan who created that great magazine. We might call him a, a competitor, but even the competitor was a fan. Definitely. So all of these great people um, no, known for science fiction, the the actors, the writers behind the scenes, they were aware of Starlog. I mean, they were fans of it, too. All right, we're going to close out by commenting on an ad that we find in the classified section in Starlog magazine. This one is entitled, Starlog Goes Japanese. Starlog now has a very special Japanese language edition 
chock full of rare color stills and Japanese science fiction news. Starlog, published in a format you've never seen before, features bold Japanese graphics with fantastic full-color pull-out posters in every issue. Packaged in a plastic laminated cover, the Japanese Starlog is a visual treat for all science fiction collectors and enthusiasts. If you look at the Japanese editions to Starlog, it's it's absolutely amazing. Their layouts are incredible. Their covers, I'm going to say, are way better than the American editions. It's just visually exciting. They're selling them here, though. $10 per issue, plus postage. Can you imagine 1979 paying $10 for a magazine? Yeah, it's it's amazing. So I guess, that, so they, if they put it in there, I mean, there probably were some people who bought it. Absolutely. Now, we're looking at Starlog right now. This issue was two ninety five because it's a giant size anniversary issue that has tons of pictures in it. But the previous issue of Starlog was a dollar ninety five. So essentially, the Japanese edition, if you were to get it sent to you in the United States, not including postage, was five times the price of the regular edition. Amazing. So, so if anybody bought it, I mean, they would also have to be able to read Japanese. I guess they, they wanted it more for the pictures, probably. Yeah, totally, totally. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. Nanu.